Good morning. Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. My name is Skeet. It's my pleasure today uh, to open up the Bible with you as we finish out our summer series through Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it to Hebrews 11 and put your finger there. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's two things. One is uh, you can get a paperback ESV Bible at the end of each row, and we'll have them on the screen. If you don't own a Bible uh, that is portable, so if you have a family Bible that's about this large, um, then take one of these home with you. Uh, and join us at a Bible study and use that as your portable Bible that you can get from place to place. It's our gift to you. Our security team will not tackle you at the exit uh, for sneaking out with it. You, you don't even have to hide it. Uh, so please follow along with us as we go through the Scripture this morning. Uh, so I'm excited uh, to get to try to bring what we've done in Hebrews 11 to a close this morning. And what I want to begin with is something I think is incredibly important as people of faith. You see, the Bible makes a number of claims about what is true that, if accurate, change everything. The Bible claims that God took on human form in the man Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life, died for our sins, and rose again. Now, there are other stories in history and even in, in the Bible of people dying and, and coming back to life. But the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is unique because he raises from the grave immortal and glorified. Whereas other people, that, that there are stories of being raised from the dead, they're raised and they're still normal and then they, they eventually die just like we all will. But Jesus rises immortal and glorified and ascends back to heaven, really as the pattern for us or the hope for us of what God will do for those he has redeemed. And that story, if true, changes everything about our understanding of who we are, who God is, and what it means to walk with him. And that story, we believe, is given to us in the scriptures. In fact, when, when even the writers of the New Testament would talk about that story, they would talk about Jesus dying according to the Scriptures and being raised according to the Scriptures. So the testimony and the believability and authority of the Bible is incredibly important for us as Christians. These, these aren't fables. These aren't stories that we tell that, that have interesting messages in them. These are statements of fact that, if true, change everything. And so we have to sometimes step back and say, is the Bible believable? One of the most kind of impressive testimonies to the truth and veracity of the scriptures to me is the way the Bible deals with its heroes and the way it tells the stories of the men and women that it presents as examples of faith. And you see that in Hebrews 11. If I was setting out to tell you the story of my life, there's a whole lot of things I would leave out. There's a lot of stuff from junior high that would get omitted. Uh, there's some things from last week that would get omitted. If you're wondering, I would choose Matthew McConaughey to play me in the movie because he's from Texas and, you know, we're basically, basically. no, no, we're, we're both white men. So there's, there's that commonality, but I would twist and tinker and spin the message so that the story of Skeet presented the best foot forward for me. That's the way we tell stories if we're not overly concerned with being truthful. It's not the way the Bible tells the stories of its heroes. 
It tells stories that are really gritty and really honest, that expose their frailty and weaknesses and their flaws, and puts those on display and says, in the midst of that, God used them. And so we went through Hebrews 11 this summer, and if you were with us, you saw a number of of really flawed people that the Bible says were faithful, and God did great and amazing things through them. Today, we'll talk in particular about David, who is probably chief among this cast of characters. He's men and women who God did great things through. But go through it. i just give you a run-through. We, we found the story of God working through men who were liars and thieves, arrogant, petulant men at times. We saw God working and doing amazing things for men who had committed murder and for women who were prostitutes, people with checkered past and, and bad resumes, whom yet in the midst of that, God loved and redeemed and changed who took their weakness and their flaws and their frailty and did amazing things. One of the things I love about the Scriptures, not only that they tell us the stories, but particularly in the life of David, that we get a glimpse into his walk with God, his intimate moments with the Lord in the Psalms, where David pours out his heart to God, and and God, God kept that for us to see. And so in David's life, you'll see David at times just overcome with joy in the presence of the Lord. And he'll he'll say things like, where can I go that I'm apart from your presence? And then he'll write things like Psalm 42, where he says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts after you. And and here in America, we we have paintings of that and they're beautiful green lush forests. And there's this large symmetrical 10 point that scores about a 140. And he's right there drinking out of the water. and, And my kids are thinking, can we shoot him? And other people are saying, it's beautiful. But it's this picturesque scene. David doesn't know anything about that scene. David lived in a desert environment. And so when David says, like, a deer pants for the water, you picture a dying, dehydrated animal looking for a stream to live. And David says, I hunger for God and I thirst for him in that way, that that if God doesn't show up, if God isn't present, if I don't feel him near me again, I'm I'm probably going to die here in the wilderness. So David is this man who who loves the Lord, who fails, who at times knows God's closeness and celebrates with joy in his presence and at other times feels dry and distant from the Lord and wonders if he'll make it through another day. And the Bible just presents that guy to us in honesty. It's one of the reasons that we can trust the Scripture is because as the ring of truth, it presents its heroes at times as weak and busted, broken, foolish men and women who God uses. Not only does that speak to the truth of the Scripture, but I think it should encourage each of us who find ourselves busted, broken, foolish men and women. So what I want us to do is to pray, and then we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer of Hebrews kind of brings this whole section of Scripture together. So let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of grace who uses flawed men and women and that you have spoken to us in truthfulness so that we know that we can trust you. We thank for you for your promises for us in Jesus, who died for our sins and rose again, who offers us the hope of eternity with you, who having ascended to your right hand, sent the Spirit to us as a helper and a guide. I pray that he would be active at this moment, opening our eyes to your word and our hearts to receive your instruction. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So as we look to a recap of Hebrews, I want you to, to see what's going on. We've had some kind of stories told of each of these people. And as we get to the end, it's kind of this stream of consciousness where the writer of Hebrews begins just saying, there's more and more and more that I don't have time to talk about. So in, in chapter 11, verse 32, we come to that. He says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back to their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about as skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. This is the way the writer of Hebrews brings things to a close. There's two things I want you to notice here before we go any further. One is that there are examples throughout the history of people of God, of God doing amazing deeds through people who believed Him. Great victories and successes that God delivered to his people simply because they trusted him. And at the same time, there are many examples of people of faith being empowered by God to endure great hardships. The problem that some of us will wrestle with is we'll look at the first half of the equation and say, God grants the victory to his people if they're faithful and will neglect the other side of the coin that says sometimes God is gracious to give strength and power to faithful men and women who suffer great things because of their faith in Jesus. Sometimes God empowers victory. Sometimes God empowers endurance through hardship. Notice the, these people that, that endured hardship, that were sawn in two, that were destitute, afflicted, and imprisoned, God doesn't rebuke them that they lacked faith in some way, and because of that they suffered. That's not what he says. He says they were faithful, and the world was not worthy of them. Sometimes the Spirit of God will give us victory. Sometimes the Spirit of God will strengthen us to endure hardship. And we can't pretend that it's only victory. When you learn about the life of David, you see this. We'll smash and grab version of David's life here. He uh, was a shepherd boy outside of Bethlehem, the youngest in his family, the last person you would expect to do great and mighty things, and God anoints him as a teenager, as king. Now, David continues to serve his father and work as a shepherd in the family. He then has a season where he serves Saul, who's the current king, who he already knows he will uh, replace at some point, but he serves him. In the midst of serving and doing what he's asked to do, he finds himself uh, there at the battle lines, where the Israelite army faces 
the Philistine army. He hears the giant rebuking and ridiculing the God of Israel, and he can't stand it. So he, he goes and he becomes this great giant slayer. We all know the story. Even if you don't know the Bible, even if you've never been to church, you, you know the David and Goliath story. We talk about it in sports. It's your classic David-Goliath matchup, like yesterday, U of H taking out the Sooners, just like that. You know we had to go there. Um, you don't need to know the Bible. You don't need to go to church to know that. It's etched in our collective consciousness, that story. But David does that. God gives David great victories. He becomes a powerful military leader. Things are great. He's married to the king's daughter, living as a part of the royal family. But Saul's paranoia against David grows, and David finds himself on the run. Now, this is interesting to me. David is faithful. God has anointed David to be king. God has rejected Saul as king. But David is unwilling to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. So much that there's a point where David is hiding in the caves as a fugitive with a ragtag group of guys who are loyal to him. Saul is on the march and goes up into a cave to use the restroom. It was the, the you know, uh, ancient history version of a truck stop. And David is hiding in this cave. Saul goes in and begins to remove his outer garment to go to the restroom. David sneaks up behind him and removes a patch from Saul's garment to confront him and say, see, I could have taken your life, but I haven't. I want you to think about David's faithfulness and patience to say, I'm not, I'm not going to move against the Lord's anointed. I'm going to wait for God in due season to place me where he wants me. And David suffers because of his faithfulness. David is not living in comfort at home with his wife as a part of the royal family because David is faithful and is allowing God to determine the moment at which he will become king. He suffers and he delays gratification, power, control, and prominence because of that. So even in the life of David, you'll see these moments where David's faithfulness is actually the cause of the hardship that he endures. There'll be other moments where David's foolishness is the cause of the hardship he endures. But when we read this section of Hebrews 11, we've got to lay out from the beginning, sometimes people will be incredibly faithful and things will go badly. But God will give them strength to endure. So with this list of people, David stands out as a unique individual. I think because David's life experiences are different than most people's. In fact, when I read this list of experiences and things that people did by faith, many of them are true of David. Think about what we saw in David's life story. He was anointed king. He's in service to his father and to King Saul. And he finds himself in 1 Samuel 17 at the battle lines. Now, he's brought some, some food in a basket to his older brothers who are part of the army. It's a really good basket. There's about five or six types of cheese in there. And, and he's delivered that, and he hears the giant Saul rebuking the armies of Israel and ridiculing their God. And David can't handle that. Now, David hears that, and immediately he says, we, we can't stand for this. I'll go kill him. Well, that gets around camp, and, and King Saul hears of it and calls David before him. So we need to see in chapter 17, verse 31. 
When the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep the sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear that took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So I want you to think about what's going on here. The, the, the battle lines are drawn. You, you have the Israelite army on this hillside. You have the Philistine army on this hillside. And in the valley in between, the war would be settled. Now, there, there are a couple ways we could do this. One is we could all go down and fight. Lots of people would die, which means everyone would go home with a lot of widows and orphans. And that's a problem. There's an alternate approach, which is we send our champions, our best guys, go out and fight. And that ultimately determines the outcome of the battle. Now, that's risky because you lose your best guy, but you only lose one guy. The Philistines like this approach because Goliath is about nine foot tall and has great weapons and is a tough guy. David, the scriptures say, was small, ruddy, which means he had reddish hair and freckles, and handsome. Goliath was nine feet tall and a trained killer. David was handsome. So we go out to meet. David has confidence before Saul because David has experience killing lions and bears. And he says, Philistine uh, giant, much like a lion and a bear. But I want you to hear the reason David has confidence. He says, the Lord delivered me from the paw of a lion and bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David is not confident in his skills with the sling. David isn't confident with his ability to be nimble and outmaneuver this large giant. David is confident that God will defend his people and that God will deliver them from the hands of the Philistine because God has promised them this land. And so that's the pregame strategy. We're going to to line up against Goliath with, with our young, handsome kid and a sling. Kickoff comes in verse 44. They're face to face. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. He's pretty clear about what his intentions are. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and with spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. 
When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone, the stone sunk deep into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and said, over the Philistine, took the sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head. I want, you, I want you to hear what happens here. Uh, Goliath is taunting David. David says, today, we're not only going to kill you, but all of your friends. So that this assembly and all the world will know that there is a God in Israel. And victory is not won by javelins and swords. And then the scripture tells us, by the way, David had no sword. That the armies and weapons of men are not what leads to victory, but the hand of God and his provision over his people. And David's entire motivation for what he's doing there is wrapped up in the glory of God, him taking offense at the Philistine ridiculing God and desiring that the whole world would see God is the God who gives victory. So we know a few things about David. If we look back to Hebrews 11 and the experiences that he said, God through faith led many of these men and women through. One, he was, he was redeemed and rescued as God closed the mouth of the lion caring for his father's sheep. He was delivered. He was delivered from the edge of the sword. He put foreign armies to flight. He became mighty in war. All these things that Hebrew 11 says happens. These were real experiences for David that happened because David was faithful and knew that God would do great things. In addition to that, David endured hardships, years of being on the run, and endured them in faith, and he obtained promises in faith. Two important promises that David obtains. One, God had promised the people of Israel a land, a home that they would live in safety, prosperity, and security. And under David's reign, they begin to drive out the other people that occupied the land, and they begin to live in the promised land the way that God had told them they would experience it. In addition to that, David obtained a greater promise. God promised David that if his descendants were faithful, one of them would reign from his throne over all the earth forever. And that promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who having died for our sins and then being risen and exalted, sits at the right hand of God, who will come again to, to rule over creation in its entirety as the one descendant of David who was completely faithful to the commands of God. And so David obtained these great promises from God because he was faithful to God. The question for me is, how does, how does a small shepherd boy do this? How does a homeschool kid from the sticks be, become a great military leader and king? How does he become a man that teaches us what worship looks like as he writes the Psalms? How does he do this? Because whatever that recipe is, like I want some of it. There's a few things the scriptures clue us in on about who David is. I think if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 34, you'll see what this is about. 
In Hebrews 11.34, you get this interesting phrase about what God did in the lives of these people. I think it's true in David. I also think that this phrase is the central theme of every story of every hero in the Bible. They were made strong out of weakness. I believe that that is the central theme of every success that David ever had. It's the central theme of every hero ever recorded in the Bible. The story's not ultimately about them and how great and mighty they are, but how God takes weakened, busted people and makes them strong. About how God does things in them. These were things that were accomplished by faith, not by might or power, but by the God who strengthens the weak. Even think about David early on in his life. His, his willingness having been anointed king to serve his father, obey him and serve his brothers and serve the king. I mean, think how difficult that would be. I'm just 16-year-old me finds out he's going to be king. You know how easy it would be to begin to tell, Dad, you know, you, you don't give me the orders. I'm not serving these older brothers. They don't appreciate me. I'm going to be king. Why should I deliver things to them? Why should I continue to watch the sheep? I need a better position. You, you, you know the prophet said I'm going to be king. How is this preparation? Dad, I need to go to the best schools. I need to get taken out of the field. I, I want to enjoy life, and I want people to do what I say because I'm going to be king. That's not what David does. David has this humility about him at this moment. And this passion for the glory of God above all things. I don't think you've ever seen a young man more committed to the glory of God than David as a, as, as a young boy, as a youth. That's what you see in him. Now he struggles to hold on to that, but it's a real thing about who he is. He doesn't have some pretense of his own capacities and abilities. He's humble and he's dependent upon God, and so God does things in him. God takes him as, as a weak youth who's done nothing, and he exalts him to make him someone who does great and mighty things. He's made strong out of weakness. Now, this is important because this isn't just a story, right? Hebrews 11 doesn't just write down a list of cool stories because he felt like the Bible needed a greatest hits section. There's a reason for it. And the reason is to encourage a group of believers who are struggling. When you read Hebrews, what you find is that the church here in Jerusalem, they're hard-pressed, now, you begin to read a little more, and you'll find they're not in a moment where they're being actively attacked in violent ways. That had happened at times, but it wasn't the everyday experience for the believers in Jerusalem at this moment. What they experienced was something more subtle, and I want you to think of it in a contrast here. By God's grace, I've had the privilege of baptizing a few of my kids. And when we've done that, it's been great. We have out-of-town family that comes in for that. Um, obviously, our faith family's here to celebrate that. Um, when they get baptized, we all cheer. I'm a, I cry. I'm crying thinking about it. We post pictures on Facebook. Everyone likes it. And it's a celebration. And, and that's what it's like when you're a part of a, a community of believers and someone converts to Christianity, when someone becomes a believer. We celebrate it. We clap. You guys do your Aggie whoop thing. And, and it's awesome. Rewind. The recipients of this letter, when they got baptized, didn't get any of that. They got disowned. 
Imagine you live in a world that your entire identity surrounds yourself in this one religion and you leave it. Imagine calling mom and dad to talk with them and they won't take the call because you became a Christian. Imagine your kid is sick and you're at the hospital and no one in the family will come sit with you because you're a Christian. These are the experiences that were normal to the people that received this letter. And and so this is written to them to encourage them. Say, look, I know it's hard, but I want you to know that God blesses those who trust him. That faith is what you need to be strengthened to endure this and to see great and mighty things happen. That maybe through your faithfulness, the Lord would not only uh, enable you to endure this, this being disowned, but maybe God would bring other people in your family to faith. Maybe he'd use you in a mighty way. And there's these people that are discouraged and God wants to encourage them. And so he reminds them. He reminds them of, of how he's worked in the past so that they can enter the present with a memory of who God is and how God moves. The Apostle Paul understood this very well. And so I want to take you to just a few of his words that I think very much resonate with what the Scriptures are teaching us here, this idea of of strength emerging from weakness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul tells a story of how he had wrestled with the Lord, how he had asked the Lord to take something from him. We don't know exactly what it was, but something that plagued him, something he had struggled with. And he had asked God, but God responded in verse 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient in you, for your power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's the Lord's word to him, and Paul's response is this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I want you to think about that. The Apostle Paul was a prominent man who had risen in prestige in the Jewish kind of academic world and his, whose ship was sailing. He was doing well. Walks away from all of that when he meets Jesus. But then God begins to use him in a mighty way. He plants churches. He writes two-thirds of the letters in the New Testament. He's this mighty leader. And he says, God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. God moves in the weak. I'll be weak. God works in the dependent. I'll be dependent. God, God works in the humble, I'll be humble. God works in the foolish, I'll be a fool. Paul says that when we truly become useful to the Lord is the moment we recognize our weakness before him and we come to him empty-handed at the end of ourselves asking him to move utterly dependent upon him. And when we do that, something dynamic occurs. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul gives us some insight into how that works. So I want you to hear these words in Colossians 1, 29. He describes his ministry and how he goes about it. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Because this right here is the secret sauce of the Christian life. After we are redeemed and saved and brought near to God through faith, the process of growing to be Christ-like, to be faithful, and to be fruitful for him is summed up in what the Apostle Paul just said. He said, I toil and labor with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
I'm going to press, I'm going to be faithful, I'm going to be diligent. And as I do that, when I come to the end of myself, when I, when I think there's nothing left to give, the Spirit of God is going to give more. And he'll strengthen and empower me and I'll keep moving and I'll keep pressing. When I come to the point that I don't think I can go another inch, that moment is the moment that God begins to move in a powerful way in my life. When I think I've resisted temptation to the point that I'm going to break, the Spirit of God strengthens me. When I think that I've served someone who doesn't respond graciously to my serving them, and I can't take another minute, the Spirit of God strengthens me to continue if I'll trust Him. When I believe that that this ministry that God's called me to do is out of my reach and I can't do it and I have insurmountable odds, that's the moment that the Spirit of God moves in and begins to strengthen and empower to keep me going. As we bring Hebrews 11 to a close, I want you to think about something. As we were uh, planning this out, this is the last sermon series here that I got to map out. We almost called this one unlikely. Because when you read uh, the stories of these people, they're really unlikely heroes. They have bad resumes and, and sketchy backgrounds. In fact, when I read the Old Testament, there's, there's only a handful of people that I would let even babysit my kids. Right? We run background checks for everybody that works with children here. And if you read the Old Testament, there's only a few people that pass it. We got Nehemiah, Daniel, and his three friends. Everyone else we've excluded. These aren't the kinds of people that we would, would write down as the examples of the people that God would do great things through. So what are they? They're people who had faith that God would be faithful. And it really is that simple. Not perfect. People who trusted that God would do what he had said. So as we bring this to a close, I want to begin where we started in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. If you're one of these people like me who says, I'm weak, I'm busted. My resume's got some really sketchy stuff on it. But I want God to use me. Let's begin here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Just... Think about that for a moment. All of these things were done by faith. Faith in the God who created the universe with a word. Faith in a God of infinite power and grace and creativity. God who speaks and universes come to life. A God who moves in the unseen realm and does things that impact and transform things that are seen. So when the odds seem insurmountable and you don't think you can press another inch, we move forward because we believe that there's a God who's working, who surprises his people with his goodness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are good, that you are better than we ever imagined, and that you are mighty and powerful. We thank you that you are moving even now in a way that we don't see, in a way that will transform the present and the future. 
Lord, I pray that you would allow us to come to grips with our own weakness and frailty before you. And that we would cultivate a spirit of dependence upon you. And that in that, you would give us strength. Strength to do what you've called us to do as as your ambassadors. Strength to endure whatever hardship comes our way. And that in the midst of that, we would have joy knowing your son. And he'd be honored by all that we meet. In Jesus' name, amen.